0: You're listening to a Tutor in Stuart, Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 10th Annual Tutor in Stuart, Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at the Royal Irish Academy on the 19th and 20th of August, 2022. The conference was generously supported by the Royal Irish Academy and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Media, in association with History Hub. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Simon Egan from Trinity College Dublin, entitled Revisiting the Royal Pretenders, Simnel, Warbeck and the Wider Gaelic World.
1: A reasonable body of research has been completed on on these pretenders, but... Scholarship has largely focused on the colonial community where they're hosted in Ireland. So, we're talking about Dublin, the Pale for Simnel, and then largely Cork um, for Warbeck later on. Um, Lots has been said on Garrett Moore Fitzgerald, the 8th Earl of Kildare. So, he's the man who was a leading figure within the, the first conspiracy for Simnel, and he crowned Simnel as King Edward VI. ...in Christchurch Dublin in 1487. A lots lot has been said about, about that. Um, a fair bit has been said about... ...Garab Moore's cousin, Maurice Fitzgerald of Desmond... ...and his support for Warbeck in 1491, 92... ...and a little bit more in 1495. We know a good bit about the international context as well. So again, looking at Warbeck's support from... Um, ...the French context, the Burgundian context... ...the context of the Holy Roman Empire... Okay, so there has been a good bit written about the colonial connections, the international connections, but there's been virtually nothing said on the Gaelic nobility and what their contribution to these crises are. So like I said, I'm not going to really say much about Simnel because, well, his kind of reign is cut short, but Warbeck is very much... The threat posed by Warbeck to the Tudors is vastly magnified by what happens in Gaelic Ireland. Okay? If it hadn't been for certain events in Gaelic Ireland, Warbeck would never have become the threat that he, he becomes. So an examination of... If we actually step back from looking at the colonial context and the international context, and we actually look at the Gaelic nobility, we get a new context, like I said, for understanding or thinking about at least the threat posed by these royal pretenders. Okay? And it tells us a lot about Henry VII's concerns with regard to Ireland which I'll we'll be talking about later on. So today anyway, I want to take one episode in particular, okay? So this is really what the paper should have been called. How did Perkin Warbeck get from Waterford City to Glasgow in the summer of 1495? Okay? It, it it's 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 um, it's something that that's mentioned that he's besieging Waterford uh, in the summer of 1495 with Maurice Earl of Desmond and then by November he's at Sterling in Scotland. Okay, so somehow in the Indian, he hasn't travelled up the Irish Sea. At least we don't think he's gone a different route. So, like I said, he's besieging Waterford City in 1495. He's driven off by the new Lord Deputy Sir Robert Pinings. Um, there is evidence that he said um, that he, he travels up the west coast of Ireland. Okay, unmolested. He's no difficulty moving up the west coast of Ireland. Such a journey would have been impossible in 1400. The political landscape is very different in the late 1490s than what it was in the early 1400s. I just want to talk a little bit about why, what has changed. How is it that he's able to move, up, move um, freely up the West Coast? What, what has happened um, in this region? Okay, so very briefly, just a, a little family tree here which should hopefully clarify a few things. So obviously we've got, um, well-known Richard III, uh, um, he, he deposes his nephew, Edward V, and locks him up in the Tower, the so-called Princes of the Tower, um, Edward IV and Richard Shrewsbury, nephews of Richard III. Um, along comes Henry VII, uh, son of Lady Margaret Beaufort. Um, so he's, he's part of the English royal line, but it's through, uh, through this line of Catherine Swin- Swinford, which was illegitimate at one stage okay so there is a, there is there is there's is a, a lingering question mark over henry the claim to the throne so that that's on his mother's side um on his father's side then edmund tudor he's welsh has no english blood um well he does actually if you, no he actually does i'm not going to get into it um
0: <laughs>
1: he then marries elizabeth of york in um henry henry tudor marries elizabeth of york to try and i suppose tap into this Yorkist legitimate bloodline and both from his own claim to the throne and as a result any children produced from that marriage um, such as Henry VIII, Prince Arthur etc they all have a York, the Yorkist claim okay, but that idea, that, 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 that Tudor claim that goes back to Beauforts, that never ever goes away Edward Earl of Warwick um, that's who Simnel pretends to be he also has a sister we're not going to talk about but she lives for, for, for a long time well into the 16th century so she's another potential claimant You've got the De La Pole family, grandsons of Richard, Duke of York. So, even after the Simnel and Morbeck crisis, you still have people in England that have theoretically a much better bloodline than the Tudors. So, as I said, Perkin Morbeck, Just, a, just a very quick overview of his, his activities. So, like I said, he comes. He has a mercantile background. He arrives in Cork um, in December 1491. Uh, he arrives in Cork and he becomes involved in a conspiracy with the French-backed Yorkists who were based in Cork at that time. Again, Charles the Seventh, King of France, there, um, is involved, I suppose, in a, a struggle with Henry the Seventh of England over the, the crisis in Brittany. So the idea is Henry the Seventh is trying to um, undermine Charles' influence in Brittany by, by fostering dissent there. So again, Warbeck arrives in Ireland, becomes embroiled in this, in this, this, this plot at a time when Charles is trying to distract um, Henry from affairs in Brittany. And it seems that we don't really know a huge amount about this, but in in December 1491, or maybe very early 1492, he agrees to impersonate Prince Richard, Richard of Shrewsbury, one of the princes in the Tower. In March 1492, Warbeck is then transported across the Channel. He's taken from Cork to France, to the French court. But... By the end of the year, Henry and Charles have made peace, okay? So Warbeck then flees uh, across the border into Burgundy, okay, to um, the court of Margaret of Burgundy, his aunt in the commas, so the sister of Richard III, and she's absolutely delighted to have found her long-lost nephew who was missing for so many years. Okay, so that's the kind of the, the illusion, I suppose. She then sends him to Vienna, okay? Um, to her son-in-law, Maximilian I, the the Holy Roman Emperor. So again, he's getting recognition by various heads of state in Europe, a very senior senior dynasty, anyway. So we had the French king, we've got Margaret of Burgundy, who's the Dowager Countess of of Burgundy, and now the Holy Roman Emperor, Maximilian um, I, who recognises him as Richard IV. August 1494, so a couple of years later, um, he returns to the Netherlands, to, to the Burgundian lands, with Maximilian's support. And an invasion of England is planned for the summer of 1495. The invasion fails. It's botched. Um, They try to land on the south coast. They're repelled. And he ends up sailing to Okay, Sails to Yall, where he links up with Morris, Earl of Desmond. It's not clear when Warbeck went to Cork originally, if he met Desmond or if he negotiated with Desmond, but Cork is Desmond's town, so Desmond more than likely knew about what was going on with the Yorkist conspiracy in 1491. Anyway, in 1495, summer 1495, um, Warbeck returns to Ireland, links up with Morrish at Desmond, and they besiege Waterford City. Um, The siege is not successful. They're driven off by the Lord Deputy, Sir Edward Pynings, who's been sent to Ireland to really shore up royal authority and basically um, push Warbeck out, stop, make it impossible for him to use Ireland as a base of operations. Now, he then heads north. Warwick is driven off, flees west. We don't know what route he takes, but as I said, the, kind of the question, the purpose of the paper is how does he get from Watford? all the way to Scotland. Um, The evidence we have is circumstantial, but it seems, to me at least, that he he travels through Nortmunster, travels through Nortmunster, then Connacht, and then Tyrconnell, modern-day Donegal, where it seems he boards a ship for Scotland. Again, we don't have concrete information, but there's certain snippets uh, that that, that suggest this is the route he takes, and the Lords controlling these regions have been identified as supporters (laughs) of Warbeck, Okay, so like I said, he's within the Earl of Desmond. Again, so this is a very, 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 very rough rendering of the Earl of Desmond. Broadly speaking, this is the hegemony of, of the Earl of Desmond. So we can presume, and like I said, this is a conjectural route. Um, he could still have gone by sea. So When I finished this paper, like the idea is he could still have taken a boat. But even if he went by sea all the way up to Tyrconnell, he would still have, have needed protection from the lords controlling the coastline. Okay, And the, the, route, the land route he takes, these are all predominantly coastal lordships as well, so it kind of, I, I, I think it, it, it doesn't really matter what route he takes, he would still have needed protection from the same lords. So anyway, Earl of Desmond, um, he can pass through this, because this is where Mo- Morris of Desmond is the overlord here. He then probably moves through Thomond again, uh, then Clanricarde, probably up through North Connacht before he gets to Tyrconnell. He takes this route as well. But he can't really go into. He can't really go through Leinster. They are hostile forces that want to capture him. Pinings, We have Sir James of Ormond, who's kind of the, the new enforcer in in in, in, in the, the Butler earldom. Um, the safest route is to go up the west coast. Now, this is a dangerous journey. Okay, many of these lordships from running right up the west coast. The Burke, the Cahour, the Egonal, they were traditionally enemies of one another. And for much of the 15th century, they had been fighting one another. In order to understand how he, again, like I said, this is conjectural, but this is probably the route he took or something similar. In order to understand how he moves right up the West Coast, we need to look at one family in particular, the Egonal or the O'Donnells of Tyrconnell. And by the 1490s, they had arguably, arguably become the most powerful family in Gaelic Ireland, okay, um, in Ulster, they have overshadowed their rivals, the Ó of Ty- Tyrone, or the O'Neills of Tyrone. They had been the great kind of Gaelic power in Ulster for um, for many years. Um, but by, by the 1490s, they've kind of they've, they've, they've knocked them off the top spot. Further west in Connacht, they impose their lordship across this region in the northern half. Um, they're also important allies of the Stuart monarchy in Scotland, okay. Um, So they are, this kind of the western seaboard, what happens here is it's plugged into what's going on in Scotland, we have kind of a a network of relationships running down the west coast, and like the idea there seems to be this: this world is not as disconnected from what's going on in Europe as we think. Now, it's largely as well, we're going to talk about how the O'Donnells get so powerful shortly, but it's largely because of this family and the level of power that they enjoy in Ireland, it's largely because of that that the threat posed by Warbeck is magnified. Okay, so very briefly, this is kind of, kind of a whistle-stop tour of, of, of 15th-century Irish politics. For much of the early 15th century, the O'Donnells in Donegal, they had been boxed into Western Ulster. So the O'Neill's of Tyrone, again, they maintained a web of alliances with people in Connacht, um, the O'Connors, the Burkes, the Eve Rean, all with the view of boxing in their great Ulster rivals. So the, the, the O'Donnells, they are a minor power in early 15th-century Ireland. But from 1461 onwards, things begin to change. A. Rua O'Donnell, or Red Hugh O'Donnell, the first Red Hugh, if you like, um, he emerges as a new leader within Tyrconnell, within uh, quite a remarkable individual. Over the course of the 1460s, 70s and 80s, he unpicks this kind of O'Neill or O'Neill-dominated alliance network along the western seaboard, Um he does this by kind of creating his own alliance network. So he allows a Burke of Mayo, um, Burke sends some ships and men. He breaks into, um, into Northern Connacht. I forgot to add it but the O'Neills of Clan Dubai, the great East Ulster East the rivals of this family. He has an alliance with them, a marriage alliance. So again, he kind of, he encircles the O'Neills. He then begins to rest the part of this alliance network in Connacht that, that, that has contained his family for so long like I say, he gradually increases his lordship across the north of Connacht, and then he moves southwards. Okay? Um, he even negotiates in, in I think it's 1464-65 there, thereabouts. He negotiates with the then Earl of Desmond Thomas, the father of Morris, who later supports Perkin Warbeck. So there is a <coughs> connection with the Earl of Desmond as well. Um, okay. 1469, there's a large battle, it seems a large battle fought at Glenog, which is about here. And at it, he defeats the armies of Burke Clanricarde and Ivrean of Thomond, and he basically um, he, he basically forces them to accept some form of overlordship. So, a couple of years later, the Ivrean make peace, and Finola Finola Iverine, the daughter of the, the King of Thomond, the ruler of Thomond, marries Eru O'Donnell. So then the or sorry, the Iverine are kind of brought into this increasingly o- O'Donnell-dominated network on the western seaboard. The works of Clamarycard, staunch allies of the Yverine, they then pretty much agreed to divide Connacht into two spheres of influence. Okay? So again, by the 1470s, certainly by the 1480s, um, you know, the balance of power has completely shifted in favour of this family, their network of alliances. The Inyale are no longer the power they once wore. Okay? It's not until the 16th century that they begin to recover. So again, this this network of alliances running all it's, it extends all the way into Munster, okay, and it's controlled by O'Donnell. True, like I said, um, it's a lordship. that's imposed militarily. It's constructed on marriage alliances. There's evidence for fosterage, um, military intimidation. So again, this, this 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 is really kind of strong sort of lordship on the west coast, okay. They also have extensive links with Scotland. In the summer of 1495, while Warbeck is besieging Waterford, Arua he goes to the, the Royal Court at Glasgow. James is in Glasgow, uh, James IV, King of Scots. He meets with him, and the annals of the Four Masters in Ulster describe an alliance being sealed between this increasingly powerful Irish lord and this kind of um, and, and this King of Scots. Norman MacDougall has suggested it's probably here that Warbeck is discussed, okay? Um, thinking about the O'Donnell alliance network, their kind of intelligence gathering, gathering um, service, we'd say, or like this this bush telegraph, if you want, of, of of kind of how news travels up the western seaboard. They more than likely know about what's happening in Ireland, what's happening in Waterford, sorry. Um, so again, like the, the idea is, this this lordship, it, it does offer kind of a, a conduit to wider international affairs. They're they're a very important lordship. The O'Donnells, they've links with Scotland, lordship down along the western seaboard, and. It's through this network, I think, that, that, that Warbeck is able to move from Waterford all the way up to Glasgow. Again, it's conjectural, he could have gone by sea, okay? I mean he could have hopped in a boat and sailed up around the west coast, but you'd still need protection from all the families controlling the coastal lordships. Okay? So whatever way he gets to Donegal, um, he needs the protection of all these families who are all either allies or clients of the O'Donnells of Tyr Okay, So again, it, it's really important. In 1400, it would have been very difficult for someone, to, like, someone like Warbeck um, to get from this area here all the way up north and across to Scotland. Um, he needs protection. Okay. So just, just to kind of wrap up here, um, I would say that kind of, like, I haven't talked about the Earls of Kildare, I haven't talked about what's happening in colonial politics, I've mentioned Edward Pinings, but I haven't really talked a lot about what's, what's going on in, in in the colony, in the English lordship, because it, it's been pretty well covered by historians, I think. We know a lot about, you know, Kildare's letters with Henry the VII, um, the butlers, Piers Rua, Piers Rua butlers' relationship with, with, with the Tudors. We know a lot about what's going on there. We don't necessarily know much about what's been happening along, along the west coast. And I would say look, it, it, it's not enough just to simply look at the colony. I think if, if we look at what's happening in Gaelic Ireland, the ambitions, um, the kind of coordinates of... O'Donnell power in this period. There are links with Scotland, there are, are lordship stretching down along the west coast. We do get a new context for kind of understanding I think early Tudor Ireland and just the range of challenges facing the Tudors who are a very vulnerable dynasty dynastically in terms of bloodline etc in this period and it doesn't really get much better in the coming years. Uh, thanks very much.
0: Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. You can access the entire archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.